0: Welcome to another episode of the Unison Church Podcast. Today we've got uh, something a little different. We're, we're talking with um, my friend Michael Sellers, who is a professor here in Connecticut. And so we're doing, it's kind of a one-off conversation, but it's something that I find super interesting. So I'm excited for, for you guys to listen to it too. So yeah, Michael, I'll just let you introduce
1: yourself. Tell us about what you do. Yeah. So I am an uh, instructor of biology at the University of New Haven, uh, where I've been there for four years um so in general i i coordinate um the the introductory biology courses for science majors Uh, and so uh, i started at unh in 2019 but before that uh, i had a very similar position at the university of southern mississippi uh, where i uh, coordinated not only the science majors biology but the non-science majors biology so um, my my lecture courses often involved people that are very informed in the sciences, and then the sort of the, the non-science folks, the folks that are getting other degrees. Um, so uh, I also have done research in education, mm-hmm. and so I'm really interested in like, how people learn and the best teaching practices, and so a broad spectrum of, of general interests. Um, I'm a bird biologist mm-hmm. by training, so that's where my biology background came from, was studying birds and migration. That's awesome,
0: yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you about birds because I know it's um, it's obviously everything's related to our topic today. But I know yeah. you like to talk about birds, so give us like an overview of like what your favorite thing is to do in biology.
1: Oh, my favorite thing to do in biology. So it's it's a lot of fun to take students out in the field so that they can see a lot of the biology happening in the world around us. Yeah, um, just because we we get so distracted by all the other things in our lives. Uh, that there's, there's so much about biology specifically, but science in general that we're just surrounded by all the time. And so having, you know, taking students out and giving them a, an opportunity to like step away from their phones and away from other distractions and just like notice the, the birds that that are moving around them uh, or, or the insects or the plants and just like noticing things they don't notice before and then start connecting that stuff to the like theory stuff that we're learning in class so that so they can really understand that, you know, there's so much life happening around us. It, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's
0: cool. Yeah. So the, the specific reason I want to have you on is because you were, we had a conversation a while back and um, you were talking about this evolution course that you were teaching. Yeah. And um, I wanted to have a conversation with you about evolution because it's a topic that I've heard a lot about. But I've definitely always heard it from what I would call like an apologetic standpoint. So um, what that means is essentially, you know, with, with the Bible, there are certain people that think that um, if the Bible is true, then what we commonly think of as evolution can't be true. And so they have argued that we have to disprove evolution to mm-hmm. to prove the Bible's validity. I personally don't believe that at all. I don't think that that Genesis is... is um, Talking specifically about the way in which God created, but I'm also like a, um, I would say like a agnostic when it comes to evolution, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really like, I don't have like a, a dog in the fight necessarily. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk with somebody who is com- coming from a pretty different perspective than I am. Um, but going into that, just so we know, tell us a little bit about your, your um, interaction with Jesus and the church.
1: Yeah. So I was raised Catholic. Uh my entire life I was baptized in the Catholic Church. Um went to Sunday school every Sunday. Uh did all of the very Catholic things, um confession and uh, yeah. all, all that stuff um all and uh, and and you know if if I was told like time to go to church, like I would go to a Catholic church. Sure. Um I would say that I I would not say that I'm a, a devout catholic um but you know it because it influenced my life mm-hmm. at such an early age and and throughout you know my really most of my life mm-hmm. uh I I would you know if I had to pick a denomination I'd I'd say that I'm catholic uh but loosely sure um you know I I definitely believe that jesus existed for sure mm-hmm. uh and and did some wonderful things to, to the world uh yeah so i guess in that regard um you know i would not say that i i wouldn't say that like i don't believe in jesus i sure. just i just think that the things that we know and don't know um about jesus and and his life and uh are lost to, to time got you and it, i think it you know it kinda of led to in my opinion, um, this kind of fracturing of so many different both both um both uh Christian and, and non Christian yeah um religions. And we it's one of the things, you know, humans can't agree on. One of many, many, True. many things agree, <laughs> that sure. humans can't agree on. Sure. But uh yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's kinda of hard to not believe in a historical Jesus at this point. Yeah. Cause... Like we know he existed. Yeah. Yeah. Like even if you're Totally anti Jesus. You gotta kinda be like, okay, clearly there was a guy. Yeah. And he <laughs> was know? doing
1: really great things. Right. And this whole idea of like be nice to each other and take yeah. care of each other. Like those are good ideas. Yeah. We for, should be doing that. For sure. <laughs> and they did
0: sort of become
1: ingrained
0: in society <clears throat> more so towards that time period of time. Yeah. I feel like, you know, we start to see like society use Jesus teaching or what we might call like Judeo Christian mm. teaching at sort of its bedrock for like moral law enforcement things yeah, like that around sure. you know post the Roman empire mm, yeah so it's yeah it's it's like apologetically which is kind of the goal is like apologetics is using other like not the bible to kind of reinforce what the bible says mm, yeah and the historical apologetics i think are super strong <laughs> for um kind of doing that but there are certain claims in the bible that are not empirically verifiable, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I totally, I totally get where you're at there. Obviously, uh, me and my guests on this show are generally like all into the Jesus thing <laughs> and the Bible. <laughs> so, fair. so, but, uh, but I do want to, you know, give the disclaimer to people listening and to you as well that I don't expect that you will necessarily agree with everything that I will agree with. And that's totally fine. And it's cool. And we can, I think we can have a lot to learn from each other. So yeah, yeah, I'm super glad that you're on the show and, um, talking about this topic. So you grew up Catholic. Mm -hmm. Were you taught about, so the kind of evolution that you teach now, does that square with the way that you were raised or did, was there some kind of conflict with that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, from a, from a purely formal standpoint, um, the Catholic Church in general has sort of got on board with this idea of of evolution, and that it makes sense from that worldview. I think I think being raised in the South, uh, I am from Mississippi uh, and raised Catholic, which means that I was also very much a minority in terms mm-hmm. of religion because yeah. Southern Baptists by and far dominate yes. the South, and then after that, you know, it's things like Methodists um and so i was very very much uh the the minority yeah. a- and uh i i don't remember ever having uh, learning as i was learning about science and and evolution um i don't remember the catholic church ever really giving me a hard time that that being said um uh i when i was younger i didn't really have a whole lot of science background sure at least not not formally. A lot of uh, what I learned about science I actually taught myself. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, being raised in the 90s, uh, we got a home computer in like yeah. 95 or so. And all it really came with was like word processing. And there was a CD that had the encyclopedia on it. Okay. And it's very nerdy, but I would spend a lot of my free time interacting with this digital encyclopedia. Okay. And I would read the encyclopedia for fun, yeah. <laughs> and that's where I learned a lot of my science, and learned that I wanted to be a scientist. Um, yeah. But we, we we've been friends for like a few years now, and that does not surprise me at all. Yeah, <laughs> so like on brands, yeah, I love that, and it was great, and I loved it. Uh, and so I didn't really, the the Catholic Church never seemed to ever come up in yeah. terms of like you know what what they feel about science. Now, my non-Catholic friends it was a pretty regular thing that would come up. Okay. Um, where you know we'd be learning something at school and and you know somebody would verbalize that like they didn't believe that because sure. their their pastor told them something different about yeah. science in general. Uh and so that's when I first really it was high school, when yeah. I first started noticing that there seemed to be some sort of divide. Yeah. between science and religion. I didn't really understand it. Right. Um, cause I was, you know, 14, 15, like, you don't understand anything when you're 14 and 15. You think you do, but right, you, you understand right. nothing. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it was more of my non-Catholic friends of which I had many. Yeah. Um, where those divides started coming up. And so we didn't really talk about that kind of stuff. Got
0: you. Yeah. I would say as somebody that was raised, so I'm not Southern Baptist, um, we're like an independent church here. We're not part of a domination at all. So we, we would we would have some very serious issues with certain Southern Baptist distinctions, um, <laughs> which is interesting because yeah. I don't
1: I don't for me I don't know the, yeah. the differences yeah
0: but there is um, there are some similarities because I would say in general you know Southern Baptists and what we are as I would just call us independent mm-hmm. our church is Baptist in the name but it's very not normal for. Like most Baptists would have a problem with, with us, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but uh but we are generally evangelical. Um okay. it, I would say that would be like a more umbrella term. And there is I would say there's two things in, in evangelicalism that um rub up against it. The first one is I think evangelicals have sort of a rebel spirit. Okay. Um there there is like this um sometimes it's not a bad thing. Most of the time it's a bad thing, (laughs) but sometimes there's, it's good. Sometimes it's good. But I would say where it becomes a bad thing is like, okay, there, you know, there's this distrust of like the man Mm. and also the media and, Mm. and things like that. And so there's always like, they want to like fact check everything. But the problem is, is that, and this is just a general problem. That's a world problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is when we fact check stuff, we go we go into an echo chamber to do the fact checking. Yeah. Right? That is true. So that can be, so that can be, you know, that can get you in trouble. And I think that's where for you're sure. talking. There's a divide because there, there is actually like real scientists that are professional scientists that it's just that when evangelicals fact check, they'll go to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they'll, and they'll find the answers that they're, they're looking for. And I think that can become, you know, like I said, an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. The other thing though, is that, um, they, there is like a foundational difference in where truth comes from for the, for an evangelical and this is this is true of of the catholic church too but i think to a lesser extent and that is that like the bible is the supreme authority mm. i fully embrace that the bible is the supreme authority and so when we look into um like genesis 1 and 2 there's no mention of evolution and we'll talk about what exactly that you know that means and stuff but there but i I will look into Genesis 2 and I'll say, or Genesis 1 and 2, and I'll say, is Genesis 1 and 2 even talking about the way in which God created the world? Mm. Like, to me, it seems like if you're taking the Bible seriously, that you have to hold that, like, okay, God created the world in some way. But there are a lot of uh, theologians that would now argue that God could have used the evolutionary process right. to, to to do that. And... Um, one of the things that I'm hoping to do with the next part of our conversation is just talk about what would that look like, maybe. Mm-hmm. And what does science think that evolution looked like in general? Um, and so, some people, though, they'll they'll take the Bible and they'll say, you know, there's no room for evolution, and because there's no, I'm going to believe the Bible. I'm not going to believe science. Yeah. And that's the divide that you're speaking of. That's where it comes from. Is they feel like the Bible is incompatible with that right. view of science. Then they go into their echo chamber and they see that oh, there's some science science that that um, agrees with what I think. And so they kind of become solidified yeah. in, the, in that view. So I agree that there's a huge divide. I don't think that there has to be such a dis- distinct divide. Like I said, though, I'm still agnostic.
1: Yeah. About no, it, so. I, I agree. And I tell my students that that when we're learning about anything in science, not, not just evolution, like um, evolution and, and science are one way of interpreting the world around us, just like religion is, and they sure. don't have to be incompatible. Yeah. Um, in fact, it's important. That we form bridges between different, all, all different sort of aspects of the way that people understand the world, and they do that through different ways. People do it through music and science and religion, and you know, art and technology yeah. and I mean, you pick your topic, yeah, um, right. And they, they are all interconnected because they're all they're all like human, right experiences. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and
0: and interestingly enough, we actually have to hold the distinction that if something is true, it has to be true everywhere. Like, that's a very strong, like, evangelical thing that, yeah. that we believe is that, like, okay, if God did create the world, then the world should show that. We call it general revelation. Okay. So general revelation should line up with what we call special revelation, which is the Bible.
1: So yeah. The special okay. would
0: be, like, divinely inspired gotcha. in that case, right? So the divine and the natural should sort of line up if what we claim to be true it's true, yeah um but I think the application of that how is something true is like a big mm. question that when I read the Bible, I'm saying I know this is true, how is it true yeah, right so if something isn't trying to talk about science maybe maybe it's you know it doesn't have any like truth bearing towards science if mm-hmm. that makes sense mm-hmm. that's one possible thing um like i said i I, I want to try to remain agnostic because I that's definitely where I am so I don't want to say something necessarily that ties me to a certain belief because i'm still kind of working this out so yeah so yeah help me with that explain to me what what's evolution all about
1: so what is evolution all about uh it's a it, well for one it's, it's a humongous concept yeah. uh i have i guess we'd say professionally been studying science and biology and evolution for 20 years yeah. and i would by and far never say that i know it all sure at all in fact I feel like the more I learn the less I know because I keep it keeps revealing new questions that I'm like, "Well, why is this? Well, why is that? Well, how did that happen?" Right. And so but in a nutshell, when when I am especially when I'm introducing uh evolution to new students, whether it's a formal evolution class or like it's an introductory class, um I usually start by just saying The most succinct definition of evolution is change over time. Okay. And then we start kind of sort of morphing out from there like what is changing what kind of time sure when it boils down to it evolution when we say change over time is changes in gene frequencies in a population so now we're adding like new science terms yeah which is the part where i, I was saying like we kind of start expanding out and i try to incorporate what we're learning right, right. in class so genes of course are, are in our dna and genes are discrete units mm-hmm. of DNA that code for proteins, okay, which in turn give us the traits that we see in, in our in our bodies. For yeah. example, I'm having microbiology
0: flashbacks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. uh,
1: and so, for example, uh, if we're talking about if you have curly hair, for yeah. example, curly hair, um, your your hair is a protein. It's made of keratin mm-hmm. and some other stuff, but that the instructions for making hair is in your genes and the fact that it's curly depends on which amino acids which are the building blocks of proteins mm-hmm. which amino acids are hooked together when your cells are making hair okay and so if those have those amino acids have very close interactions it causes your hair to curl around itself sure and that makes curly hair Got if it. you have very straight hair that means that a different sequence of amino acids is built, okay. which have fewer interactions with each other, and so they don't curl around each other, and it makes straight hair. Okay, cool. And then when you see all the variations that we see in humans, those are just variations on on that gene. Got so it. different flavors, if you will, of, of that gene. So that that's the gene part of the definition. Yeah. Now, when we say changes in gene frequencies, what that means is that different ratios of genes are found in the population at, at different numbers at different times sure so um it, you know if we did a broad if we took all humans everywhere and we you know kind of inventoried them to see do we have more straight-haired people or more curly haired people or more wavy-haired people and we did the math so you know calculate percentages yeah we would get you know some number out of a hundred percent. Of yeah. the people, that that's the ratio. So, uh, and let's just pretend that seventy-five percent of the human population has curly hair. Sure, and then you know maybe twenty percent have uh, straight hair, and five percent have wavy. I'm making things up. Yeah, I'm making yeah. those numbers up. Sure, but the, those are the gene frequencies. Okay. So now here comes the time part. So when we say change over time, what we mean is that. If we look at human population over time, so over uh, different generations of humans, that, that's really what we mean by by time, yeah. do those ratios change? Right. Are, are we seeing over time less curly-haired people or more curly-haired people? Uh, and so as those, as those genes change over time, that's evolution, is yeah. how often certain genes are appearing in the population- Over a given time. And if that's changing, then there's some sort of evolutionary change at work. Sure, But then that leads to more questions. It's like, why are curly-haired people disappearing in in this made-up scenario? Yeah, right. Um, There's some factor that's causing less curly-haired people or more straight-haired people. And then we, we ask that same question about all kinds of characteristics. Yeah. Not only in humans, but in birds and plants and bacteria and on and on and on. Right, right. So that's that that's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Evolution is change over time, changes in gene frequencies. Yeah. And then everything else is an expansion from that. Right. Right. So if I
0: remember because um, I have I actually have like a pretty big interest in science. Yeah. I thought about going to school for physics like I was really into. Oh, yeah. Science and I was kind of good at math but I didn't want to go to school for like 12 years. Fair. And I didn't want to fair. be an engineer, <clears throat> which is the only thing you could do with physics that doesn't require 12 years of <laughs> <laughs> That's like, fair. Like I wanted to be like a scientist, but I but I don't really enjoy going to school. So, <laughs> so I didn't want to do that. So um, that was like my big detractor from it. But if I remember right, way back in its inception, evolution was kind of about that, right? It was like, um, and you can correct me after I say this, but Darwin kind of went to a different region, mm-hmm. noticed that birds had distinct uh, characteristics mm-hmm. that, as you described, would have been small changes in, in,
1: in genes to match with their environment. Yes, I believe. Yeah, that's, that's kind of good... the original idea of evolution, right? Well, no, actually. Okay. So Darwin Darwin definitely had some of the biggest impacts okay. on, on our understanding of evolution. But the idea that organisms have been changing over time is a very old idea. The ancient okay. Chinese wrote about it. The ancient Persians, gotcha. um, the the Greeks, the the Romans, they all had this thought that like things don't seem to stay the same. It seems like the world is changing. Sure, they they didn't understand how or why, but they they wrote about how like there's different organisms in different places. And when a, the ancient Chinese would travel, and of course they were some of the the earliest yeah. um, travelers that really moved around the world. They were noticing that they were just seeing so much different stuff and that the the earth seemed to change, like that they would see like parts of mountains fall away, sure. for example. Yeah. And and so they had this thought that like maybe the earth hasn't always been the way that it is. Yeah. We don't really understand how or why. It's just what they're seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then as we kind of fast forward from the ancient Persians and ancient Chinese to slightly more modern times, mm-hmm. that uh, – and the the advent of the, the scientific method, that's where um, scientists and geologists and all, all sorts of different fields started really applying the scientific method. Okay. To like, why does it seem like things don't stay the same? Sure. And – eventually and and th- there were several other like ideas about evolution that didn't really hold water um, but uh, eventually leading up to to Darwin sure who actually originally was um, Darwin was going to be a preacher yeah. uh, his yeah, dad yeah. was a preacher right and he was like I guess I'm going to do that yeah and then it, it didn't really he didn't really like it and so then he was like well I'll be a doctor like that that's what yeah. that's what we do that's the next job yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll be a doctor and that wasn't really great either. Uh, and so um, he ended up actually being hired by the, the captain of the HMS Beagle, yep. which was his the, the famous ship. The Voyage of the Beagle was where Darwin traveled to the Galapagos. But he was hired as what was known as the captain's companion, which today that sounds kind of scandalous. But that was <laughs> a professional <laughs> position back, back in the day. Okay. The captain of ships was usually educated okay. and his crew was not. And so he wanted somebody on his, his intellectual peer to travel with that he could talk to. And so they would hire a companion. And so the captain of the Beagle hired Darwin as his companion, simultaneously worked out for Darwin because he wanted, he loved nature, and he wanted to learn more about the world. Sure. And so he joined the HMS Beagle. Turned out they didn't get along. The the Got captain you. of the Beagle and Darwin really didn't like each other. So Darwin spent a lot of time alone. Okay. And that's where he started writing about this idea that he had called natural selection, where um, he hypothesized that nature has an impact on organisms and the characteristics of those organisms and which characteristics were more useful to the organism and less useful. And so on the voyage of the beagle, he collected data all along the way, all along the eastern coast of South America. In fact, he got off the boat at times and would walk because okay. he didn't like being on the boat, and all the nature was on land. And so the the captain would drop him off, and he'd walk and meet the boat somewhere else. Oh, okay. And collect data all along the way, all the way around to, to the Galapagos Islands, where he also famously wrote about the, the finches, the, the birds okay. that lived on the island. And so Darwin, really, his claim to fame was that he collected a lot of evidence to support this idea of evolution by means of natural selection, which is what his paper, which later became a book, yeah. was about. So that that really is what he did for evolution, if you will, is he sort of discovered yeah. one of the mechanisms that drives right, right. evolution was natural selection.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, let me make a few claims, and then you can kind of critique me on that okay. so if i if i if I kind of take what you were saying earlier and what you're saying now about Darwin, this idea of natural selection would kind of be that the the organisms with the genes more suited to the natural environment tend to survive while the ones with the genes that are not as well suited to the environment die, therefore, there becomes a greater population of the ones with the genes that can yeah.
1: Survive in that environment, right? That that's a great summary. That okay. that's our change in gene frequencies over time. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, my second
0: statement would be this. It's more of a philosophical statement. Okay. In my understanding of, and and it's you know I'm not an expert by any means, right? Um, I'm a pastor. I would claim to be a theologian, but not not <laughs> you know most theologians would like you know spit me out if <laughs> you know what I mean. I'm just not. I, An expert enough in the the history of theology, I would say, is what I'm the weakest in in that. So let me try to kind of get – I think – because Darwin tends to be like the big bad guy in – or I would say it's really more about Darwinism. Yeah. Whatever that means, right? Whatever that means. (laughs) Okay. So um, I think probably what was more harmful to the church in so much that we might view it as harmful to the church – Was not so much Darwin's idea of natural selection, but the way that philosophers of that time, mostly naturalist philosophers of that time, took what he said about natural selection Mm. and then applied it and kind of chewed on it all the way culminating into, like, Arianism, really. Oh, Um, yeah. Right? And so I think a lot of our enmity towards Darwin is um, more so a knee-jerk reaction to maybe some negative philosophical application Mm -hmm. of this like verifiable idea of natural selection because natural selection makes a lot of sense um in in so much as we defined it Mm -hmm. um but uh but i think maybe our ire towards that is more a philosophical issue with the way that some people later applied the idea of natural selection specifically to humans the thing is when you jump to humans, you're now dealing with like morality, not just science. Right. Right. So <clears throat> um so maybe there there were I think there was some um some bad and, and part of it was because of naturalism, right? This idea that there isn't anything other than nature governing the way that humans live, which I would imagine most scientists don't even agree with now. Yeah. <laughs> but but um but but at that time it was very popular among philosophers, especially in Europe. And mm. so um i think that really that's probably more of what we have an issue with with darwin than what Dar- darwin actually said would do you think that's probably true
1: yeah i i would tend to agree with that um we we t- humans in general tend to be our own worst enemy yeah uh we we find something good about the world and we're like how can i mess this up oh yeah you well, you just described like the whole bible basically <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like, I could do something good with this, but right. look at all the trouble I could get right. into instead. Yes. And the Bible is essentially Jesus uh, rescuing us
0: from yeah, that terrible- I would tend to agree with that, ter- yeah. Terrible brain Our... state, yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that for sure. So was it Darwin that had any um, solid things to say about like the origin of the world? Was he kind of the one that started that trend or is that some- I mean, we've had creation myths for a long time. Oh, Yeah. Right. But like as far as like scientific origins of the world, was that kind of Darwin
1: or? So it uh, no, it it wasn't Darwin specifically, although um, his his sort of discovery and then uh, popularization of evolution by means of natural selection, it caused this ripple effect in science where everyone started looking at things through a new lens um so geologists for example knew that the continents moved mm-hmm. but they which was actually really useful for evolution because we would find fossils for example of very similar organisms on very different places on Earth, and sure. nobody could understand how this was possible. Sure, sure. Um, for example, llamas, which are native to South America, and camels, which are native to to Africa and the Middle East, yeah. um, look very similar. Sure. And they, geologists found these fossils that looked a lot like yeah. camel slash llamas in Africa, but in the wrong place. And they were like, this, I don't, what? how could this, be? there's no way that llamas and camels cross the Atlantic Ocean. Like, sure, that, that's not possible. But they, the geologists knew that the continents were capable of movement. Sure. And so Darwin's sort of d- discovery of natural selection had that ripple effect where now we could start connecting dots. Yeah. And realizing, well, once upon a time, South America and Africa were one continent. And that meant that once upon a time, there were some ancestors of camels and llamas that lived on that continent, sure. and they got separated yeah. when those continents moved apart. And in in um, in biology, we we call that vicariance. Okay. When some barrier arises, that can lead to a, a speciation event, which okay. is a component of evolution. So when uh, an organism that is the same species gets separated yeah they they can't swap genes anymore okay and so now the the ancestors of camels and llamas um they're on different continents once those separated so mm-hmm. now we've got some that are on South America and some that are in Africa and those continents are moving further and further apart sure. they're experiencing different selective pressures d- different yeah. different components of natural selection um, camels started living in hotter, drier climates. They mm. adapted by, um, losing a lot of the long yeah, shaggy fur, right. being able to conserve water. Sure. Um, their, their, their bodies are much, much, much higher off the ground. So it keeps them off the hot sand. Sure. Whereas llamas, the, the ancestors of llamas moved up in the mountains yeah. where it was colder. They needed the shaggy fur. They're yeah. lower to the ground. Um, and th- those, those, Those characteristics that were beneficial were selected for, but only in those groups that are now separate from each other. And so they, over time, became more different and more different and more different as those different selective pressures were passed on from one generation to the next. Until today, when you look at a camel and a llama, um, they they do share a lot of characteristics, but they are distinctively different from each other. Yes. And that's what Darwin's sort of discovery, allowed us to start connecting the dots, too, is now these fossils make sense. Now these organisms that are thousands of miles apart that look very similar, right? that they look similar because they're related. Yeah. Granted, now it's fairly distantly related. Right. But um, it allowed a lot of those scientific mysteries to all of a sudden fall into place. It's like we we were missing pieces of the puzzle, and all of a sudden the puzzle fell into place. Yeah. Um, Okay. That with, with that extra information that we just didn't have yeah. at the time. Yeah. So I'll tell you,
0: maybe you might laugh at this because I don't know how you how you feel about Noah's Ark at all, but <laughs> there actually is, what you're saying is an idea that gets brought up sometimes when people talk about Noah's Ark. Yeah. And, and that's that, you know, Noah's Ark, we have like, the, we're given like measurements for Noah's Ark, so we know like mm. approximately how big it would have been, you know, according to, you know, if those numbers are are to be like scientifically accurate. Yeah. Right? Um and, and people have said, there's a lot of different animals out there. How can we get all these onto the ark? Like the, like the, the Bible story says. Yeah. Right? And people have said, Hey, you don't have to get them all. You just have to get an ancestor of all these species. And then that ancestor disseminates into, you know, so maybe you have some kind of ancestor that becomes maybe. llamas and camels. Right? Yeah. Um, but I, the reason I bring that up is because that I think brings up potentially one of the biggest disagreements between people, and that has to do with how long this process would take. Mm. And so I think over time, evolutionists have tended to say that it's taken longer and longer, like over time, um, and we're you know we're left with a, a very long time that it would have taken for this um, this uh, evolution to take place. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you Again, if you're to take all the numbers in, in Scripture literally, scientifically, then, then you're, you're only left with, you know, 8,000 years or so. Right. And you're also left with the assumption that the animals and humans were created pretty close to one mm. another. You know, if you're to take a very literal seven-day approach to Genesis 1 through 2. Yeah. Um, where God literally created the world in, in seven days. Obviously, this is some kind of special act, so it would have to be, you know, not following what's natural in science it would be like some kind of special yeah. thing right um but if we're if if you're to take that as seven literal days then you have sort of you know five and six like one day apart the animals and the humans are created mm-hmm. um which i think is a one of the probably one of the biggest disagreements that i see anyway when i talk talk to people or when i talk to people about evolution is that you know we need all this time for these different species to arise because it takes time for evolution to happen. So what, um, what would you say? Like how, how much
1: time would we be looking at for some of this to happen? So there is, there are many, 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 many different ways that evolution can happen. Natural selection is just one. Yeah. Um, so in general, natural selection can happen over a few generations. Okay. Uh, it can happen over many generations Uh, Rates of evolution vary dramatically between different groups of organisms. Usually, in terms of natural selection, it usually has something to do with the the time between generations. Mm -hmm. So, for humans, for example, we make babies. You know, every time you have a new human, it takes you know we'll just say twenty ish years for that human to mature and then be able to have another baby. Okay, so twenty years, just to pick a number. Yeah. Um, is a fairly decent amount of time between yeah. generations, and often uh, you need a lot of generations in yeah. order f- to see these these big, large-scale changes sure. over time. Sure. That being said, there are other aspects of evolution that can happen very fast Okay, um, in humans. If, if we want to pick a human example, um, <clears throat> the, the human characteristic for digesting milk so people that are lactose intolerant versus lactose tolerant. Okay. That's an evolutionary change in humans that happened um, only over uh, a few, just a, a handful of, of um, a relatively short generational time yeah. uh, for, for humans. Um, we, we know that the sort of default trait for humans is uh, usually around about age five or so once you're weaned off of your mother's milk. Okay. If we're talking about ancestral humans, yeah. of course, nowadays we have formula and things like that. But sure, sure. historically, of course, yeah. women uh, would, would feed their babies breast milk, yeah. and babies are typically weaned somewhere around five years old. Okay. And one of my made-up rules in biology that I, I tell my students, which holds water most of the time, is if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. Biology doesn't like to hang on to things that are energetically expensive because you have other stuff that your body needs to spend resources on. Got it. One of those is the the gene for making lactase, which okay. is the enzyme that humans use to break down lactose, which is found in milk. Okay. So around about age five, you're weaned, um, you don't drink milk anymore, typically, and the, that gene would turn off in sure. humans, okay. and so adults couldn't drink milk.
2: Yeah.
1: However, in almost simultaneously in Africa and Europe, mm-hmm. um, different two Relatively far apart human populations sure. uh, in the the olden days, if you will. Um, they domesticated camels and goats in Africa and cows in Europe. Okay. And started harvesting milk from those organisms. And there was a small uh, population of humans in both areas that as adults, they retained that gene. Oh, okay, interesting. Just to natural diversity in the human population. Yeah. Um, we we might even say that it would be like, like a mutation, basically. Yeah. Randomly, it turned out, a mm-hmm. few people could digest milk as adults. And they had access to more calories
2: okay.
1: than humans who couldn't, which means that now they had food resources that human, other humans didn't, okay. which means they had extra calories to do other things, like make babies. Okay. And their babies received that gene where they retained the ability to eat or consume milk. So yeah. now they can eat cheese and milk and cream and they have all these extra calories, they could have more babies on and on and on. Sure. So this gene became more prevalent and more prevalent till today. We have humans, um, many humans, it's about 25% of the population, Sure. Um, are, are capable of digesting milk on into adulthood. Yeah. But those ancestral populations that didn't domesticate um, and then consume milk Those human groups tend to still be lactose intolerant as adults. So like East Asian populations tend to have a high number of lactose intolerant people. Yeah. Whereas people of European descent and African descent tend to have the ability to digest milk. Yeah. Uh, As adults, that's evolutionary change over time. Yeah.
0: And we can observe that because we know what kind of diets those people eat. Exactly. When was the last time you went to a Chinese food restaurant and had something with cheese in it? Yeah. Almost never. Never, right. Right. But if you have French food,
1: it's all cheese. Yep. So, and or, so, Or Italian food. Yes. It's all cheese. Yep. But that's changed over time. And that's one of the most recent evolutionary changes in humans. But that happened over a relatively small number okay. of, of generations, uh, enough that like we know. like We saw it happen. We saw humans that weren't lactose intolerant. There are humans that are lactose intolerant. And we still see the leftovers from that. There's a number of people that don't have that gene active in the human population today. Um, We can also see evolutionary change very rapidly in some species. uh, Bacteria, for example, have very short generational times. So whereas new humans, you know, uh, we make new humans roughly every 20 years if if we're thinking about just kind of an average human. But bacteria have offspring under ideal conditions, sometimes every half hour they divide. So their generational times are shorter, which means that their rate of passing genes on to the next generation is significantly higher. Okay, And so that's how we end up with resistant strains of bacteria that are resistant to our medicines, because they, they start out being able to die from it. But as we apply this medication, this antibiotic, for example, mm-hmm. the ones that are weak to it die off, but the ones that have natural resistance they survive and pass their resistance genes on to the next generation. And so now more of them are resistant and gotcha. then they survive and pass it on again yeah. until eventually you end up with whole populations of bacteria that our medicine doesn't work anymore. So then we got right. to switch to a new medicine.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, we're all familiar with that kind of science because we've been hearing it through the whole COVID pandemic yeah. the strains and stuff like that.
1: In fact, there's a good chance some of your listeners might've had an infection from like MRSA, the the methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. It's really common to get those types of infections just from everyday life. MRSA is just, it's in showers and it's in water and it's on your skin. And some of us are colonized by it. And as long as you don't have any cuts or scratches, you're fine. But they're very opportunistic. And so if you get a a decent cut and don't treat it quickly, um, you can get an infection that's resistant. Oh, Um, gotcha. Or actually recently here in Connecticut, uh, there were instances of um, flesh-eating bacteria, Vibrio, uh, in the water. And people were getting these infections. Vibrio is resistant to tons of our medications because antibiotics have been overused, and now resistant strains have arisen. Interesting. So time, the length of time for evolution to occur is dramatically different in different species in yeah. different scenarios, depending upon how fast they reproduce. Mm-hmm. yeah,
0: oh, it's really interesting. yeah, this is um probably not what most people would think of when they think of evolution. And perhaps there was a distinction that I learned when or when evolution was kind of posed to me in, in classrooms and different settings like that, mm-hmm. is that we have
1: this idea of micro and macro evolution. Yeah,
0: are those dated terms? Do people still use? No, those? no. All right, cool. <clears throat>
1: my the, the textbook that I I for my evolution class has a whole chapter only on macro evolution. Okay, so in your in your textbook,
0: this is actually an interesting question. I didn't even think to ask this, but if you if you get your science textbook right, mm-hmm. um. You're saying there's a chapter on macroevolution. Mm-hmm. Would the rest of the thing be on microevolution, or
1: not necessarily? But okay. a, a lot of it is because the the microevolution is changes at, at the genetic level, sure. and because so many so many aspects of biology are linked to genetics. Yeah, the the vast majority of what you're learning is, is genetics. Right. Okay. Uh, and in fact, uh, if we which. It would not I don't think it would be a very interesting conversation but if we did talk about some of the like ways that we um the way that we analyze evolutionary change statistically a lot of that involves really unique genetic techniques okay got you that to just like talk about would be super boring but <laughs> but I'll, it, j- just because that is really the that's the nuts and bolts that's that's the what I often describe to my students as the, the tools of evolution is, is at the genetic level yeah. Um, because that's what's changing. It's just that we see it at the, the macroscopic level represented as, like, my curly-haired example sure. Uh, earlier. Yeah. Um, the, the characteristics that we can actually visualize with our eyes.
0: So that's what you would call macroevolution would be the visual...
1: Yeah, that um, – when, when we talk about macroevolution, we're talking about, like, large scale. The um, sure. w- When we use the, the prefixes micro and macro, m- the prefix macro is, like, big. It means big, right? Yeah. So when we talk about, like, speciation events, that that's a component of macroevolution. When we see – when we talk about, like, phylogenetics yeah. and looking at the interconnectedness of life – and how new species arise from old species that that that's macroevolution. Gotcha. And then micro is everything that's happening kind of at the genetic and molecular level.
0: Okay, so even some parts of macro so microevolution is very much observable. We've been talking about that this whole time. Oh, for sure. Very much observable, right? Macroevolution, one of the things that I've always heard against it is that it's not observable, mm. but it sounds like some of
1: it actually is observable. Yeah, all of it is. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't be science if if we couldn't observe right. it. It's literally uh, probably, if you think back to learning about the scientific method at any point in your life, you learn yes. that part of it is observation. Right, you have to be able to see it because that's how you collect data on it.
0: Okay, so talk to me about maybe some aspects of evolution that, uh, maybe maybe that's not even the right category, but but uh, you know one of the things that I've always heard is, and perhaps this is even what everybody believes when it comes to evolution, or um, but the I would say the biggest like the toughest pill to swallow for Mm -hmm. instance we already talked about like the age thing yeah can be kind of weird but the other thing is um definitely in like media and stuff about evolution we have this idea that you know all life started as kind of like a couple proteins and it Mm -hmm. kind of grew into like single cell and then eventually becomes you know what we see today with humans and animals and stuff like that um and one of the biggest critiques of evolution, I always said is like you know we don't really see like hybrids, like like one, not even species, but like you know uh um uh, you know we don't see something that's like half human, half something else. Yeah, you know what I mean, or something like that. And so some people say well, that's not really observable. So um for I mean first of all, is that wrong? Is it actually observable? Like do we actually see hybrids like that, or um is that not? foundational to what we're talking about as evolution
1: no no it definitely is so hybrids are a really interesting aspect of of biology so uh hybridization happens when two very similar species interbreed okay and you get really sort of a a mix of the two original parents sure usually it happens when two species are very closely related yeah and and we see hybrids all the time being a bird biologist um, there are a number of instances where you do get hybrids of okay. of birds, so two species um, that interbreed and you result or it results in offspring yeah. that are kind of a, a weird mix of the two. Sure, I mean we have that with dogs. Yeah. So, well, dogs are all the same species. Okay. So whether Got we're it. talking about Chihuahuas or Great Danes, they're all Canis familiaris, the the the, the dog that's been um, that humans have, have domesticated and have been you know sure. their best friend for now thousands and thousands of years sure uh, what what we see are what we call like dog breeds mm-hmm. are really a result of artificial selection which is gotcha. one method of evolution sure. so you've sure. got natural selection where nature sort of selects characteristics and it sounds like nature's a person when we say that but nature's yeah, not right, right, we, right we just mean that it's a mechanism that is filtering out useful traits and non-useful traits yeah artificial selection is when humans do the, the filtering. Right. And that's how we ended up with all the dogs that, that we see. Yeah. But whether we're talking about Chihuahuas or Poodles or Cocker Spaniels or Great Danes or Greyhounds, right. they're all the same species, which is why they can all interbreed yeah. and produce viable offspring. Okay. That's really the key or one of the, the key sort of definitions yeah. of what makes a species is that um, we, we call that the biological species concept. Okay. And it's that generally speaking, if two organisms can interbreed and produce viable offspring that can also make babies, that's a, that, that means yes. they're the same species. Sure, sure. So and if what, they can't, then they're not the same species. Would a hybrid be more like if a dog and a wolf, maybe? That, yes. That would be more like yeah, a hybrid. That, that would be more like a hybrid, right. Okay. So um, our, our domestic dog descended directly from a common ancestor with wolves. Yep. Which is why often what what can happen, especially if you have a dog that just like lives out in the yard, yeah. Um, and sometimes they do breed with wolves, yeah. Um, and and you do, you know, you get these hybrid offspring. Often, though, hybrids end up being sterile, yeah, uh, because there's a number of barriers to right. to speciation, um, and one of those well, uh, they're they're what we call prezygotic barriers. So, like, barriers to, like, the actual intermingling of the organism. Yeah. And then there's post-zygotic barriers. And what we mean by that is after they, they've copulated, after they've done the act, yeah. there's something about their, their biology that prevents the offspring from being viable. Gotcha. And one of those is often hybrids are sterile. Got it. Because their chromosomes are compatible enough, because they're similar enough, that they can be born and survive and live and, you know be potentially great pets if we're talking about, like, a hybrid between a dog and a wolf. You know, live their long, happy doggy life. Right. But they can't make babies because right. the chromosomes aren't compatible in order to form Got you. gametes and then make more babies. And that's why we don't get, like, a new...
0: Um, yeah, what would the
1: word be that would it be a species? Like yeah. a new species that's yeah, so, like from that. Right. Yeah. So for example, lions and tigers are very closely related. They're they're large cats, they're 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 in the Felidae family. Yeah. Uh, they can breed. You can breed a lion with a tiger, you get a liger. Yep. That's the actual definition, uh, the actual name of that organism, but ligers are sterile. You ligers can't make more baby ligers because yeah. they are not a species, they're a hybrid.
0: I see. Okay. So How, then, did we end up with totally different branches, like humans from monkeys or something like that? Yeah. You know, like I said, if that is foundational to evolution, even. Yeah.
1: So, um, that's a really big question. Yeah, Uh, I know. It's a lot to unpack. (laughs) I
0: know. I'm asking you to, like, put,
1: (laughs) you know, make concise these huge, you know, observations. Yeah. (laughs) Um so what what that boils down to is is another one of those ripple effects from from Darwin's uh, discovery of natural selection is that if if species do change over time mm-hmm. and new species arise from old species, that would mean that all life on Earth is interconnected.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh,
1: and which I think is a beautiful thing that yeah. we're all connected to each other, whether we're talking about plants or mushrooms or dogs totally. or cats or yeah, bats. And, uh, or it's actually a very
0: Christian thing. It too. really is. Yes, right. In um, and, and the you know, I actually, my next Hebrew tattoo is the word ruach, which means the breath of God, and it's what creates everything. Yeah. In Genesis, it's a, kind of like a beneath the surface of the Genesis narrative is that. God has, in you know, infested all of creation mm. with life. It all comes from God. Uh, Paul even quotes some Greek philosophers that said this of Zeus, that said that, you know, uh, in Zeus everything has its living. Yeah, and uh, Paul actually adopts that. He quotes it twice in the New Testament. He says, "In in Yahweh there is." Everything has breath and has their living, their essence from God. And so that's a very Christian
1: idea right. that, that every all life is connected. Yeah. And the science backs that up. Yeah. Uh, all life on earth speaks in DNA mm-hmm. and, and RNA, the same alphabet, the A's, the T's, the C's, and the G's of DNA. Yeah. All life on earth, whether we're talking about bacteria or um, yeah. dolphins or humans, all of our genetics are the same. I lost my train of thought. That's okay. Uh, Cuz your right. your your connection I, to that was like, yes. it, was really like <laughs> Sorry. it was really like it was really like I got like it, theological on in it, our it science. was great. Like I, I loved that connection but now I lost my yeah. train of thought. So what was the question um,
0: the question is just how then do we end up with like humans oh. from apes? It would be like the most significant one for for Christians anyway. Yeah, for sure. If these hybrids tend to be sterile then, how would we?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the most common misconceptions about evolution is that. If two species are related, that, like, one came from the other, which is absolutely not the case. Yeah. One of the mo one of the probably the worst things that ever happened for people's understanding of evolution is that really stereotypical image of, like, monkeys yes. morphing into apes, morphing into— Yeah, like... and
0: Disney, like, ran with that. There's yeah. been, like, a ton of movies where that's, like, the beginning of it. Yeah,
1: and that is literally not the way— Evolution works at all. I anticipated whatsoever. that to be the case. Yeah, it's, it's that's one of the reasons I want to have you on. Actually, uh, yeah. I think this boogeyman evolution that we yeah. think is actually not what people think. Right. We would never say that like humans evolved from monkeys or monkeys evolved like that is absolutely not true. We share a common ancestor. Yeah, um, and that ancestor was neither a monkey nor a human, uh, but similar enough. And recent enough that we share a lot of characteristics, more characteristics between us and the other apes than we do other organisms. So, like, we have five digits on a hand. We have fingernails instead of claws. We have binocular vision. uh, We have noses instead of snouts. uh, Our faces are relatively flat. uh, We form large social groups. We have communication and social structure. We share all these characteristics. Yeah. With so many similarities, because we share a common ancestor, those traits were beneficial to both species, and they got passed on over time. It's just that the ancestors of humans experienced different selective pressures. Got it. Um, So humans moved out of the forests, out of the trees, probably because um, in ancient Africa, um, due to changes in the climate, a lot of the forests started to dwindle away, and more grasslands started to arise in Africa. Uh, and and we know that humans arose in Africa. there's um there's a lot of genetic evidence connecting all humans on earth back to mm-hmm. ancestors in, in Africa. Um but because our ancestors started living in the grasslands, um grass was tall. Yeah. And so, one hypothesis for the evolution so of like, like upright up. walking yeah. was being: if you could stand upright, you could see over the grass and see predators, and if you couldn't stand upright, you got got. You got got. <laughs> yes. And so, the the like low stature trait was selected against, whereas walking upright was selected for. Okay. Um, which. One among many examples of what led sure. to that speciation event, where mm-hmm. we we shared a common ancestor, but that common ancestor split off, right, at leading to today modern humans, right? Would and that be course- like?
0: uh what do they call homo erectus right so Would that be that yeah, speciation so, event or
1: yeah so uh in um when we talk about the the scientific names for organisms on earth we, we use a binomial system so two names yes uh modern humans are homo sapiens right. which is latin and it translates as a man who knows okay um which is a little a little conceited of us, but <laughs> yeah, we, we we do know things. Sure, so it's sure. it's a man who knows. Yeah. Uh but the whole Homo genus, which is all of the, the human like mm-hmm. um apes. What a clever pun. Yeah, I know, right? Yes. Uh they we're we're all related to each other. It's like Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalis, yeah. um are all ancestral humans. Uh yeah. we, we know they existed. We we find their fossils, we find evidence. Um, of them, when we look in, uh, we find the caves that have, like, the cave paintings and things like that. Yeah. We have, uh, have Neanderthalus genes inside of us. We, we thought that the, um, the, 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 the group of, of the, the Homo Neanderthalis we thought they went extinct, mm. um, mostly from, like, fighting between Homo sapiens. But new studies have shown that it looks like Homo sapiens started interbreeding oh, with okay, Homo so- Neanderthalis. And we actually sort of absorbed them, and yeah. modern humans today have Homo neanderthalis genes incorporated in to yeah. them, yeah, yeah, uh, which is a relatively recent discovery. Sure. The, our, our ability to like really understand genes are only like yeah, like thirty or forty years old. So let me take that because that's an interesting piece, mm-hmm. and
0: though you know stuff like what you just said, where it seems like now maybe the Homo neanderthalis and the Homo sapiens they breeded, it and we kind of absorb them. Mm-hmm. To me, that very much supports a view, and it, you're probably going to disagree with this based on what you said, and that's okay, but if we think of this view where it's like, okay, God created humans, mm-hmm. there were no like, proto-humans beforehand. He created humans sort of somewhat as they are today. Yeah. Right? If we take that view and we say, oh, well, it actually kind of seems like maybe these people didn't go extinct that we interbreed with them, kind of sounds more in line with this idea that like all humans were together and they just bred and what we're observing is maybe different types of humans that just bred and through natural selection the homo sapien those those genes became dominant uh as opposed to the the Neanderthals. does that make sense am i stating that somewhat clearly like that maybe it wasn't an evolution thing so much that it was two different groups of humans that were both created around the same time and now we see that the Homo sapiens were just naturally selected.
1: Well, so, yes, uh, we we wouldn't say, well, like so the the all we have left is the the like bones of of the right. cavemen is what we often refer to. Them of course, as. right, right. Um, but they they were distinctly different. So, for example, their nasal chambers were significantly enlarged because right. they uh, humans originated in Africa. And then over millions of years, slowly spread out of Africa. Mm-hmm. Some moved into Europe, where it was significantly colder and drier. Right. Others moved across the Middle East into Asia. And we know that the, the Homo neanderthalis were um, distinctly different species from humans um, because their, their anatomy was quite different from ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned the, the nasal chambers. So because yeah. they arose in the very cold... Um, northern portions of of Europe, their nasal chambers are significantly enlarged, which allows for them to, when they breathe that cold air in, they can warm it in the nasal chambers before it would enter down in the lungs, which was an adaptation um, to prevent moisture loss. Yeah, uh, Probably everybody's probably done something outside in the cold before yeah. and you know, running, jogging, working, building something. And you, as you're breathing harder in the cold, your lungs start hurting. And it starts yeah. to become painful and you feel like you like can't catch your breath. Right. If you had evolved in a habitat where it was always like that, yeah. there would be a selection against our tiny nasal chambers because the air stays so cold that it would dry out your lungs and you can't actually oxygenate your body. Yeah, and you would die. With a dry lung. Sure. So those big chambers in their head are distinctly different from Homo sapiens, and that's just one example. Got it. Um, which was allowing them to survive in those colder climates. Right. Um, so so th- it does appear that they were distinctly separate species. Okay. Uh, but because we were so closely related, they were capable of interbreeding. Yeah. And, and as I said, probably many of them were just sort of, their, their species was kind of absorbed into ours because they were similar.
0: Right, right. Okay, cool. Cool. So, um, using the same example, cause I think this gets at some of like the heart of where, um, where some of the disagreements can yeah. be. Um, but one of the, so one of the things that you said that I just want to clarify, because I think it is a huge thing. So you're, you're not necessarily saying like most evolutionists wouldn't state that the, um, the ne- Neanderthal, what's the name for it? Homo Neanderthalis, uh-huh. right? That it was like a linear progression of there was something before the Homo neanderthalus, then there was that, then they evolved into Homo sapiens. It would be more like Homo sapiens and Homo neanderthalus had a common ancestor, like you were saying. Correct. Right? And okay. And they,
1: they coexisted at the same time.
0: So not so much a progression, more two different species that one was selected yeah. over the other. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So could it be that... Um, could it be that during the ice age, mm-hmm. it was just true that Homo neanderthalis there were more of them because of the conditions, mm-hmm. and then once the ice started to melt, there became more of the Homo sapiens, but they totally coexisted the whole time, and they would have both maybe been considered human. I understand that's more of a philosophical idea yeah. than, a, than a than a human idea because we're talking species, and I think what people hear when they say species is okay, Homo sapiens are humans, and Homo neanderthalis are not.
1: Right. Yeah, human um, is a very broad... Totally. Th- there were a lot of, of, like, human apes, is kind of what we called it. Sure. Because uh, the, the ape family yeah. is, includes things like gorillas and yeah. orangutans. Uh, not orangutans, I'm sorry. Uh, gorillas and chimpanzees and humans today. Okay. We're, we're all it. in the ape family. Oh, okay, just because of the physical similarities? Yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. Uh, the, the ones I mentioned earlier, like, we have fingernails instead of claws. Yeah. Chimpanzees have that. Gorillas have that. We have forward-facing eyes with a flat face instead yeah. of a snout. Sure. We have that. Chimpanzees have that. Gorillas have that.
0: Got it. Okay. Got it. Okay. So, uh, so it could be possible then that Homo neanderthalis are still like human beings, just shaped differently. Yeah. Then, then. Uh... Homo sapiens would be,
1: yeah, and that that would pr- probably you would have to talk to an anthropologist yeah, to sure. for those those specific distinctions. But yeah, as I understand it, we we would say like that they were all like quote unquote human, yeah, um, gotcha. Okay. But Homo sapiens is specifically what we call modern humans. That, that's us.
0: Yeah. So the way that I've always understood evolution to be is with that thing. You know what you said was damaging, where it's like a progression from one thing to the next. Yeah. And I've been, you know, kind of been taught evolution is you know you start with a single cell and you eventually move up to monkeys then monkeys go to neanderthals then neanderthals go to humans okay um and my like obvious thing was well if if humans were naturally selected then why do we still have the other things like apes if we were selected then shouldn't they be gone right but if it if it's never that if it's that was never, never that. the case anyway right then that whole argument doesn't matter you're yes. just arguing against a bad Version about kind of like a you know, a bastardation of
1: what that yeah. is. Yeah, it's just a really common misconception. Got yeah, you. Um, which abound, there are nah. so many really common misconceptions, sure. That I try really hard. As some of the first things, like the first day of class, I usually ask students, Tell me what you already know about yeah. anything you've ever heard about evolution. Okay. tell me what you know just to start the conversation, right? And it gives me a chance. I like to make a list on the board. And it gives me a chance to immediately start addressing the misconceptions, right? So that we can start fresh.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, cool. I mean, that's super helpful for me because, again, like I've heard that argument so many times, and same thing with like the hybrid argument where it's like, oh, well, like mutation is generally bad. So how do we get this mutation to get yeah get to that?
1: That doesn't even seem to be quite in line with what no. evolution teaches either. Um. Definitely in, in genetics and, and evolution, a, a mutation is important. It's, it's probably the most common way that new characteristics arise in a okay. population. So in humans, for example, red hair is a mutation. Yeah. Sorry if you're listening out there. <laughs> if you're redheaded, you're a mutant. Nice. Uh, but that doesn't mean bad things. Right. Uh, a mutation just means that some gene altered. Yeah. Something about it. For some reason. Changed randomly. Yeah. And there's three generalized types of mutations when we talk about genetics. There's, um, there's bad ones, yeah. which are bad and usually get eliminated because it results in something not working properly, some disease. And so bad, gene- uh, bad mutations often get eliminated mm-hmm. naturally. There's good mutations, but those are really rare because yeah. if you change something in your genes, you're probably not going to make it better. Because it's already working. So if you change it, it's probably not going to work. Right, right. And then there's neutral mutations. And those are by and far the most common because neutral mutations are a change where at the genetic level, something about the A's and T's and C's and G's have changed. Yeah. But at the sort of the functional level, nothing changed. Got it. And so those mostly get ignored by the like self-checking mechanisms of DNA. Yeah. And those neutral mutations can be passed on from generation to generation, and they build up. Got it. And they can have unforeseen interactions way on down the road, like, for example, the evolution of red hair. Yep. um, Or uh, the example I used earlier of lactose intolerance was probably a series of random mutations that just randomly left that gene on in a population of humans that, as adults, started drinking milk. And we're able to pass that milk drinking on, that gene on to the next generation. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So it's 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 the having mutations is important. Got it. It's just like what kind did happened? Right. The the good, the bad, or the neutral. Right. So I'm thinking that, you know, the big
0: the big like, um, you know, I've said that there's been tough tough pills to swallow, some disagreements, mm. but that most of what we've been talking about is I feel like it is not those at all. Yeah. I would say maybe the the biggest thing, and maybe you could speak to this as sort of like a way to to wrap up a little bit and we'll kind of end on this thing. But um, I would say the biggest thing is the amount of time that would have to take to get to where we are now mm-hmm. seems to be pretty different from the amount of time posed in scripture. Now, some of that I think is just the nature of you know, we started writing around <laughs> that's true 8,000 years ago <laughs> yep. when the Bible started to get drafted, right? Yep, um, but um, this idea that um, and there's so many theological categories, I'm now trying to simplify, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. very large things, so I'm sure that something about what I say won't be, won't be uh, you know, the best representation of what I'm talking about, but um, you know, if if it's true that. Bible claims that creation was generally made together and that humans have existed for um, you know 8,000 years or so but mm-hmm. we but I think most evolutions would say way longer have some kind of humans existed right? Yeah. Um, but it, but if that's if that's the case humans and animals kind of coexisting interacting with God as the Bible claims that mm-hmm. we've interacted with God from the beginning that there was some sort of human doing that um, how, how does that, where do you see as like the biggest things that don't make sense in that paradigm scientifically and don't be afraid to, you know, offend or anything like no, that, no. But with that kind of concept of origins, where are the, the, the disagreements with evolution and you know, what for you would be like the toughest pill to swallow in that?
1: Yeah. So it's been my experience that, that the, the time thing is the biggest barrier. Yeah. Um, in fact, I remember in in high school quite a few of my friends that were um uh that were were baptist they i remember distinctly a day where all my friends showed up at school and they were all talking about how the earth was only 8000 years old sure and um i had in my you know infinite amount of of free time in the summer as like a you know 14 year old Um, I read a lot of the encyclopedia, and I remembered the encyclopedia, you know, being like, you know, Earth is four and a half billion years old, and, you know, the continents have been drifting for millions and millions and millions of years, and all my friends showed up one day, and they were like, Earth's 8,000 years old, and I remember thinking, wait a minute, huh? Something's not right. Huh, I don't yeah. understand why you're all saying this. Right, and right. then it turned out that they had had youth group the night before. And they had and they come talked to, about that. Yeah. And then they're all like talking about they it. They prepped and, them. They prepped and that, them. That was really the first time yeah. where I realized, like, again, being like 15 years old, I realized there's some like obvious like yeah. split in people's understanding of the world. Right. Um, and so I, that's why I feel like time is probably one of the probably the, the big biggest one. barriers. Yeah. Um for example when we were talking about the the Neanderthals and the humans coexisting um we there there's cave paintings in Spain that are like 80,000 years old of like literal handprints on the sure. human on of humans sure. on on the walls where like we know that a human was in there 80,000 years ago taking like ochre from plants Sure. and leaving their handprints on the walls. Um and we know that the age of that we know because uh what like how do they determine yeah, that? Yeah, so there's a number of ways that we can tell how old something is whether it's a fossil um that might be you know thousands millions of years old um or something you know more recent if something's just a few hundred years old it there's different technologies for for telling that. One of the most common ways that we do really old stuff is carbon dating. Gotcha. So um carbon comes in different flavors and what i mean by that is um carbon ha- can have different numbers of neutrons yeah. in the atom right and the different flavors of of carbon they they decay at a very specific rate, right? So and you've got so to do backwards we can, math. yeah, we can do yeah. backwards math. We we know how long it takes for it to decay, so if we work backwards, we could figure out time frames. So you are talking about physics right now. So yeah, I'm kind of physics tracking, and chemistry I'm with
0: you on that. That's, yeah, that's where my sort of interest was, and I always learned about those. Interestingly enough, in like you know, a lot of my education happened in like Christian spaces. Yeah, and so um, we always learned about those. Yeah, and they talked about the math, and they were like, "Here is what they use," but it's like inaccurate. <laughs> Yeah, well I <laughs> that mean like whole, that yeah, was like how we were do it.
1: Th- there's definitely a margin and error a margin of error sure. for literally everything. Of course. Right. Yeah. Um no, no matter what we're doing, there's always a chance that you're gonna get a false positive or a false negative. Sure. And we, we work that into the statistics. Yep. Um to try to account for it. We call them type one errors and type two errors. It's a whole other conversation about <laughs> sure. about statistics. Right. Um but uh with carbon dating, the the error is within several thousand years. Sure not billions sure. yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah like yeah like sure. it's relatively small and and today we've we've come up that there's other technologies for for dating things besides carbon dating it's just that that's like your tried and true yeah that's like you know it's sort of like using a tape measure like we could use something else but like tape measures are easy and they're cheap and right okay you know, we you know mean. they're pretty accurate yeah um and carbon is everywhere yes right. especially if we're talking about like human handprints on a wall um Full of carbon.
0: Yeah. And, and with so, organic materials. You exactly. Said, too, if they're using organic materials to make the handprint, there's yeah, exactly. carbon in the, in the skin cells. But there's also in that yeah. whatever the material was that they used to put that there.
1: Yeah. But even evolution and, and biology gives us some some uh, measuring sticks as well. Uh, there's something called a molecular clock that that we use to track changes in a population. And it has actually has to do with those mutations we were talking about earlier. We know that... Um, on average, mutations work their way into a genome at a relatively steady rate. Got it. Um, because uh, we, just with the, the sheer rate at which DNA replicates itself, DNA can make mistakes. The machinery of the cell is not perfect. It makes sure. all kinds of mistakes, including mutations. And so we know there's, there's an average rate of mutations for DNA. Yeah. And if we suspect that two species are more closely related, that means they diverged more recently, we would expect fewer mutations in their DNA when we compare them. Yeah. If we think they diverged a long time ago, we Got would expect it. more mutations, more differences okay. in their DNA. But we also know that if they diverged a long time ago, like for example, humans and mushrooms are related, there's like... Two billion years of of differences that have worked their way into their genetics, right? But we know that we share a lot of the same genes. Um, surprisingly, uh, humans share like forty nine percent of their DNA with bananas, <laughs> which is wild, <laughs> so weird. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. but we do, yeah. Um, and that's because once upon a time we yeah. shared a common ancestor. Granted, we're talking like three billion years ago. Got a it. lot of time for natural selection to result in in a lot of the variation that we see. Understood. But we know it's possible because if we go back to those dog examples we were discussing earlier with artificial selection, where humans make the choices yeah. in the which traits are being passed on and which ones aren't, we can do that in a couple of hundred years. Sure. Uh, new breeds of dogs up, are appear all the time. You know, when, Whenever you're shopping for a dog, you'll yeah, find some new, new right. type of dog, and that's because artificial selection when when we pick the traits it can happen very fast, yeah, um, because we're kind of doing it with a purpose, whereas natural selection takes significantly longer. Sure. So, hmm, I have so so many so many thoughts, but we don't yeah. have time to go into all of it. But
0: um, one thing that I'm thinking is 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 so one thing that's sort of philosophical, but I think you might appreciate it is that if at one point there were multiple, let's say, species of humans, or what mm-hmm. we've identified as species of humans um at this at this point if they were coexisting then it could very well be that um because i feel like whenever we look at like cavemen or whatever we always think of them as like basically just worse versions of us where they're like very stupid you know they're they're you know kind of like skittish around things Uh and um they don't seem to operate in a way that like makes sense except they're like way stronger for some reason (laughs) um (laughs) And uh, so we think of that, but it could be possible that if at one point there were different, what we'd identified now as species of humans, and if they were both human, they could have been basically just like us, but shaped differently. And perhaps it's like hubris that makes us think that we're just the the, the new and improved replacement for some yeah. of these species that we've seen.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think it would be incorrect to say that like they're just worse versions of, of us. Yeah. Um, because there there were a number of really great organisms that were super good at what they did. Yeah. Um, and they went extinct. Right. Not that they were like bad or like they did anything wrong. It's just extinction is also a natural process right. of, of biology and evolution. Yeah. Um uh species just don't last forever, unfortunately. Right. Uh they they die off. That's one of the truths of biology. Is like yeah, species rise and species fall. Uh, in fact, we, we measure those rates. We call them alpha and omega. Interestingly enough, it's, yeah. a, it's a statistical measure of origination rates for species and then like termination rates right of species. Yeah, there's a board game called Small World that actually deals with this. Oh really? That you're talking about yeah.
0: Nice. Yeah yeah. It's, that's, it's that's all about it like the, the the you know having your species decay and your your alpha species take control of whatever that was it's yeah adjustment. yeah yeah no so that's one thing i feel like maybe we're we just have a whole like worldview issue when we look at that because um if it's if it's true that there were definitely other humans that were shaped differently than us um then it would you know theologically it would it would have to be that they would be like humans image bearers of god in some way i mean perhaps in
1: genesis right so it's possible yeah. in the framework of what you're describing for yeah. that to be the case Cool. Yeah, there's a whole family tree of right. humans with probably more, actually definitely more more species than I even know the name of. Yeah. Um, species that uh, appeared in the fossil record for a while but didn't last long, or species that are like a branch off and have nothing to do with our primary lineage. They're a branch off, and then they died. Right. They, they died off. Um, right. Homo erectus and Homo habilis and yeah. Um, which again, that's more of like an anthropology. Yes. Uh, I am definitely not an anthropologist. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure,
0: sure, sure. Yeah, and I understand there's like a, you know, a metaphysical component to humans that, again, I don't think that many scientists are doing well at the like purely natural thing anymore. I think that's kind of out of vogue now that we kind of anticipate that there's a metaphysical portion of humans that, I mean, you're more oh. in those spheres than I am, but like there is a metaphysical component to humanity that is different distinct
1: from yeah animals. yeah but like the, the study of that kind of falls outside the realm of science because sure. science is about observable like, yes data that we can collect and analyze and right and that that type of thing it isn't yeah like science can't can't really speak to that yeah, yeah. because may we be can't collect speak, data on it
0: might be able to speak to the impact of some of those metaphysical Maybe. things on um and there may be certain you know that may that's probably not so much a a biology thing as it is maybe like uh, anthropology, but certainly also like psychiatry or psychology. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, uh, which, which I think is um, sort of studying like with the metaphysics of humans and the impact on their, the impact of the natural on the metaphysical and the impact of the metaphysical yeah. on the natural, right? So there's that component which we haven't really spoken to. So I, I did want to clarify that, that. We're not talking about metaphysics at all no. in this conversation. We're talking about like observable natural yep. changes. Yep. So all of the um all of the complaints from some people that are against evolution that have to do with like metaphysical questions like if some if there's like a half ape half human out there which i understand is like a wrong category altogether now but this category like oh well that how is that like a human how are they bearing the image of god like it says in genesis that that god imbues the humans with um those are just not, they're categorically like outside of what evolution is trying to do.
1: Yeah. There's, there's definitely, yeah, there, there's, yeah, there, yeah. there, there's no like ape human hybrid. Yeah. Although it was a thing that people did try in the, definitely in the early 1900s. They tried to like make like chimpanzee draw, human like a hybrids. a Yeah. Yeah. Because they were like, we'll make humans really strong and yeah. then <laughs> they can fight wars. But oh, oh, they
0: tried to like oh, artificially yeah. select yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. wow. Wow.
1: Um, and all these like like during like World War One, World War Two era, That's there were all these like like you know black ops attempts supposedly, sure um, to like integrate like co- like create a human chimpanzee hybrid because chimpanzees yes. are very strong because their their muscles life. and bones yeah. are much more dense than ours, right, right, right. because chimpanzees move through trees they sure um, they. They, they use a, a movement method called brachiation. They okay. swing from their arms. Yeah. It's like they have to be strong. Super strong. To, to yeah. do that. And that's Absolutely. why. Yeah. Whereas we don't. We walk upright on the ground. That's why our legs are longer and stronger than our arms. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I just feel like a lot of the arguments used
0: against evolution, having, you know, gone through this conversation, they're they're just not what evolution is trying to do. Yeah. It's not. It's not what it is. Yeah. I do think that there are some issues. Like you identified that the age question or at least how it works out because there's plenty of theological constructs that will add time to the earth
1: yeah um like for example i i have heard and i couldn't tell you what what denomination the people were but but christian yeah that said well you know the, the bible says seven days but what is a day to god Yes. Like right, God says it took a day, but for us it might have been a billion years. Like we don't know. Sure. Humans don't live very long. Yeah. And that that's part of our problem yes. is that we're very short-sighted. Yeah. At best, you know, we might get a 100 years. Most of us get less than 70 years. Yeah. And so everything seems to not be changing to us because we're here for like literally an instant and that's yes. it. We're gone. Right. Um and so we don't see yeah. these big changes typically. Um, but but we can yeah. we, we can see for example um, the the evolutionary change that we were talking about where species are literally changing over time. A very famous study in the 1970s, done by a married couple, mm-hmm. um, in, in the Galapagos with with the the birds of the Galapagos. Um, th- there was a drought in the uh, there while they were studying the the birds, and within a 10 year period, they saw the beaks of the birds statistically enlarge in wow. the same species because the drought killed off all the birds that couldn't eat the larger seeds yeah and only larger seeds were surviving because they had stored so much water sure and so we literally saw a species change over time just within a a decade Yeah, their beaks literally enlarged with a statistical difference yeah compared to their ancestors the decade before yeah um and, I, and I so still, sometimes we do get lucky and we do get to see like really beautiful evolutionary change happen yeah but a lot of times it does take thousands or million years especially for like a speciation event typically right right
0: yeah and I think that's really like like the that's where the all of the issues would arise anyway because I don't really think anybody that I've heard has ever really they they like to use the term adaptation mm-hmm Right, which I understand is a word that's true, but it is evolution mm-hmm. by by how you've described it. So yeah. it's like you know they they they're down down for adaptation. I think every, and and would even say it's something beautiful that God designed into creation yeah. that we could withstand these things. But but yeah, what you described with the seven day thing is what's called the day age theory okay. of theology, and it makes sense. Um, another one would just be that that the authors of Genesis use a literary device yeah. to talk about the creation. Um, there's the gap theory that adds time. Prior to the seven days, um, because there's a interesting distinction that there's no days talked about in Genesis one one, mm-hmm. but then all of a sudden in the next couple of verses we start to get the day. The right, thing. right. So there's another one of those, um, and that also makes an attempt to uh, rationalize the the seeming seemingly massive amount of worldwide catastrophes that have been um, you know put into um, you know these billions of years. Oh, that over time there's been crazy things happen to the planet that. Have oh, yeah. have impacted the environment, and uh whereas the Bible really only talks about one maybe two of them mm-hmm. um in uh, the flood and in uh there's a very small verse in Genesis about the world getting divided, and people may say that that could be the catastrophe that caused the division of of pangaea mm. um so so yeah, so um there's a lot of different ways to look at Genesis, right, certainly the most common among evangelicals is the what they would call the plain, and i'm doing air quotes the plain <laughs> reading of scripture which is the, the literal gotcha uh seven days that is absolutely the the most um represented and that's why you'll probably get some uh some things some uh, arguments or whatever hostility or whatever from evangelism in particular because they're actually dealing with uh this presupposition of a literal seven day mm-hmm. special creation um which i I'm agnostic I don't really go for that one or or another but there but I think there there are strengths and weaknesses to each argument and um, yeah. whatever the science is if the science is true and if the Bible is also also true there has to be some way that they interact sure um but that's not to say that I am necessarily endorsing that um, our understanding of the Bible has to change because science because there is also this aspect that science is evolving too, which is,
1: I guess, a play on words. It's, it does change over time. Yeah. It's the very nature of science, yeah. is that we form these hypotheses, these tentative explanations, and right. we collect data. And then if the data support the hypothesis, then we go with it. Right. We're like, oh, seems like it works this way. And we, we go with that, our understanding of the world as it relates to that hypothesis, until something better comes along. Certainly. And then if it's a better explanation, because we got better data, um, and we realize, oh, we we got that wrong. Yeah. Um, we throw it out and we go from from the new. Um, and I think that's to me one of the the most greatest things about science, is it does give us the opportunity to to change what we thought we knew, um, which means you know it, there's always something for us to learn. Yeah. And and I, I like that about science in uh, in that you know this thing that we thought worked this way, it does not. And this right. is what we now know. Right. Um, which is why, one reason why I became a scientist is, as yeah. I like that. I like that we're getting to learn and that there's always more Yeah, to know. Definitely. Definitely.
0: Yeah, so there may be something that helps to, you know, clarify the, the two narratives of, of evolution and, and Genesis, perhaps. Or there may be something that, spurs one closer to the other yeah if that makes sense mm-hmm. um but i think it's very obvious to say that there's a lot of observable evidence for evolution as a concept and i would say any christian out there listening should at least give thought to this huge thing that really governs the way that most
1: science is done yeah um in, in fact, this area yeah uh, a very famous evolutionary biologist his name was Theodosius Dobzhansky said that nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution Mm. Um, because we had all these different puzzle pieces that were just kind of scattered around yeah and then once we realized how evolution works it all started coming together like my llama and camel example right earlier um it all started sort of making sense yeah you know why why do humans look a lot like chimpanzees but are obviously different yeah. Why can we take the gene for insulin out of humans and put it in bacteria and have the bacteria make insulin for us, so that people that are diabetics can get right. insulin very fast? Right. It's because bacteria and humans speak the same genetic language. Right. Because we share a genetic ancestor. Yeah. Um, so it all starts making sense. Sure. Um, sure. Which is a very famous quote that I I like to use because it's yeah it's like ah. Yeah. All it, of a sudden there was this like this interconnected thread that we just couldn't see. Right. right. Um Yeah, and it becomes then.
0: like a language to talk about things that are happening. Yeah. Um, which which makes sense uh to me. Um I would say there, you know, a lot of the reason why we share such genetic things is because we have a common uh creator as well. Um, which I don't necessarily think that you would wholesale it throw out the window. No, I, no. I, th- I think most Most scientists, actually. Well, I'm not saying most, but there are plenty of... Oh, many. ...scientists that believe in, you know... I guess what I'm trying to say is that evolution and the idea that God created the world are not necessarily incompatible with each other. No. It's the way in which they're compatible with each other that we need to grapple with. And there may be some things, um, you know, I'm not wholly convinced about everything in the evolution narrative, Um, but I think there are some things that we just talked about that... um, are observable things like adaptation or even like what we talked about with hybrids that I can see those and I'd be like, that's beautiful. Like you've said a couple of times too, like this is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And to me, that is uh, not an opportunity to depart from no. uh, you know, Christianity. It's actually an opportunity to praise God and that his design for the way that things naturally work, which sure. certainly like this idea of natural selection and, and, um, and adaptation and evolution in so much as it's involved in that process is... A beautiful thing that's mm-hmm. designed into to creation. So yeah, I think the biggest reason why I wanted to have this conversation was because we have this kind of boogeyman thing in um, evang- evangelicalism specifically, but I think in other strains of Christianity as well, um, to kind of wholesale and use sort of cheap arguments against against what seems also like a cheap adaptation of what evolution even is, <laughs> Is is actually kind of wrong, and if we want to be intelligent and um, thoughtful mm-hmm. uh, followers of Christ, which I think the Bible actually calls us to be thoughtful and wise, yeah. um, that we we have to grapple with this in some way and figure out okay, well, what does that actually mean for for the origin of of life and for how we even live now? Mm-hmm. So I agree. Thank you so much. Absolutely, this, this has been really cool. Super yeah. interesting for me. Um,
1: I'm I'm grateful for your time. I, I'm happy to be here and um happy to, you know, maybe do a part two. Me and me. Maybe folks will have more questions and they maybe. can give you the questions and then I can, you know, come back and maybe try to address more Absolutely. misconceptions. Yeah. I would love to do that. And there's plenty of ways to reach me in the, in the,
0: I put all my links in the bio. So cool. you can just go ahead and reach out and say, Hey, I would love to talk about that thing again. Great. So, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.